It's good to see your faces today, and uh, welcome to Impact. I've met some new visitors this weekend. Sometimes people are coming in and um, have been invited, and um, one person has been watching online, they said, for the last month before they had the courage to actually come, so we just uh, know it takes courage for some people to step over that threshold and to be here, and you're our guest, and it's good to have you here. My name is Jason, and I'm the, the lead pastor just had a great time over at our campus, at Cherry Creek Campus. If you ever like, man, I just, it's too crammed and too crowded in here. There's, there's room over there. We have that campus until our church is, is built and uh, would love to have you uh, over there as well. It's such a, an awesome uh, experience to be over in the elementary school uh, cafetorium and uh, seeing the church gather in power there. It's, uh, it's a new year. We're starting a new series in this new year called Different, A New Normal, and, um, and we're reading through the New Testament, so lots of things, new series, new year, new normal, new testament, hopefully just some new life change will take place uh, for us. Uh, when I think of the, the word different, I use this expression a lot in many different phrases. Um, sometimes I'll come out of an experience and be like, that was different. You ever done that? It's like, that was different. I'm not going to say anything specific about it, because uh, it might offend somebody, but, or that was interesting. Um, I also use it when I'm introducing someone to uh, someone that might be uh, interesting, and I'm like, they're a little different, but, uh, but yeah, this is, this is who they are. And so just to kind of let them know, I know they're different, you know they're different, as long as we go in knowing that. Uh, we're going to be good. Some of you have invited people to our church and said, our church, it's, it's a little different than maybe what you're used to, but, um, but I think you'll like it. And sometimes they're like, didn't like it. It was too different for me. Or you'll say something like this, it's different, but it's a good different. Like, and that's what I like in my life when something is different, but it's a good different. It's a needed different in my life. Um, and I know there's a lot of us coming into the new year that are just the cry of our heart is, God, I want to be different. I want to be different than what I've been personally. I I need a different perspective. I need a different outlook. I I need a different way of parenting my kids. I, I need to have a different attitude. I need to have a different marriage and so you, you, I need a different heart. And for you, I just want you to know you've come to the right place, that we're going to be looking at the hope that God gives us, that we can be transformed, that we don't have to say it is what it is, same old, same old, that you can be different. That's the hope of the gospel. I, um, I come into this new year with sort of in a straight betwixt two, as Paul said in the King James in Philippians 1, where I want to be the same in some areas that are healthy, and I want to be different in the areas that are unhealthy. If you're healthy, you hope this year you stay the same. And if you're unhealthy in any way, you hope coming into this year that you're different. Both of those would be healthy perspectives. If you're off course, then it's like, I need a course correction, God. Give me a course correction. But if you're on the right course, God, help me to have the strength to stay the course. I think it's just as different and unusual for someone to have character and faithfulness to stay the same year after year after year in good, healthy habits. And so we're not just saying, let's like all of us reinvent ourselves. That's not what this series is about. It's about being good, different in the way that God has called us to be good, different. I was reading um, in the Bible, we're reading through the New Testament in this books of the Bible, biblical books of the Bible, community Bible experience, which we have them for sale. It's not too late. First uh, 34 pages we read, and it starts with the book of Luke and goes into Acts. It's put in a more chronological order of when it was written. And uh, I was reading the first 34 pages, and what was emerging And surprising me from the text is what I want to share with you today as we launch into our series. This is probably the most different launch into a new series I've ever done in my life. 
Usually I try to have sort of a soft launch that's very generic and general that invites a bunch of people into it and doesn't get maybe too specific. But what sort of surfaced in the text was so profound to me that I'm like, we've got to start there and that'll be different, but maybe that'll fit into the series quite, quite nicely. So I think it'll be swell. And I think you'll, you'll be okay. Uh, what, what stood out to me in the first 34 pages of reading of the book of Luke was the disproportionate amount of times that Jesus both interacted with, encountered with, and healed females. I could not believe the amount of encounters and the prominent positions and callings that females had to carry the ball down the field for the kingdom so that it could endure to all generations. And I just say it this way, I don't think we would be here sitting here talking about Jesus without women. Not just because they gave us birth at like a baseline level of rudimentary thinking, but because they reared us and raised us and led us so powerfully and profoundly. I know I owe a great deal of my spiritual fervor and spizzerinkum to my mom. My mom was a bearer and a carrier of the kingdom like none other. And so when I was reading the Bible, I'm reading the same Bible I've always read, but I'm reading it as a man, and I think I'm more connected or drawn to or have a proclivity to look at the stories or the events where men were transformed and I just was missing out on the ratio of women that were encountered by Jesus which was in itself very countercultural, very scandalous and subversive in its day. Jesus right off the bat when he started his public ministry was like number one I'm going to be different than anything you've experienced. A different kind of prophet, a different kind of rabbi than you've ever experienced. I'm going to assemble a motley crew of people that are rejects and dejects in society. And I'm going to go after all the ones on the periphery and all the ones on the fringes. And I'm going to assemble an army of the undesirables and the unmentionables, if you're okay with that. And then I'm going to change the world with them. I'm going to turn the world upside down. And I knew that was the case, but I just didn't, I don't think, include in my stew enough of the ingredient of female. See, I have a theological stew we all do based on what we stew over every Sunday and what we're taught. And typically we're taught by males about male stories with male illustrations from male perspectives. And I said, God, if you could actually incarnate me into a female (laughs) to allow myself to feel and to see and to sense your interaction with females, I will today try to do my best to make a pitch for the value and the voice and the vote of females according to your appreciation. And he was like, it's about time. Because they were both made in his image, male and female, and both of those male and female images are important for us to see the whole of God, the fullness of God. Would you agree? So I was surprised by that, and they were all over the place. I mean, it started with Mary. Every time we look at the Christmas story, Luke is the place where you read the Christmas story because it goes into such great detail. It isn't just talking about the wise men and the shepherds. It actually emphasizes Mary being chosen as a lowly maiden, a humble maiden by God to carry and deliver the, the Savior, the Messiah. And it, and it shares her poem, her poetry that she wrote because she was so blessed to be chosen. And then it shares a story of how at six months in her pregnancy, she went to go visit a relative of hers, Elizabeth, and then goes into the story of Elizabeth. 
and Elizabeth was pregnant as well, and her husband was Zechariah, and Zechariah, when the angel said to him, you're going to have a baby, Zechariah laughed, because he's really rational and logical, and he's like, we're too old to have a baby, and God's like, that's unfortunate that you don't believe that I can do a miracle, I'm going to shut your mouth, and he makes him mute, and some of you ladies are like, man, that would be an awesome thing if that (laughs) happened to my husband, um, pronto, but the so he, all he had is he could, he could kind of do things in Pictionary and, and, and could act things out in sort of categories in this way and he would write things on tablet, but she was the vocal cords, the mouthpiece, and when she and Mary came together, they, they both had these boys in their wombs that were prophesied. She was carrying John the Baptist, the voice of one that was going to cry out in the wilderness, preparing a highway for our God, a way for our God. And then it was his cousin Jesus that was going to be born of the Virgin Mary. And when Mary came to the scene and and met Elizabeth, literally John flipped out inside of the womb, recognized that he was in the presence of the Savior. If you ever wondered if life started in the womb, I mean, just read the beginning of Luke. Like, the Spirit of God, it says in Luke, filled the, the uterus of Elizabeth with John the Baptist while he was still in there. And then he was moving around and recognized Jesus in the womb. Powerful. But then it moved on, and not long after that, when Jesus was born, when he was eight years old, they took him to be circumcised and then go through ceremonial cleansing. They would take him to the temple. And who's at the temple but Simeon? And he was a prophet, one of the last two prophets. The other prophet is Anna. Only Luke mentions this story. And Anna is a prophetess. And she was actually the last prophet alive, had one foot in the Old Testament, one in the New, and she was 84 years old. She'd been widowed for over 60 years. She was married for seven, then was widowed, and she stayed in the temple day and night, fasting and praying. And if you don't know what a prophet is, and you don't think women are called to spiritual places of leadership and have a voice in the church or in Christianity, a prophet prophesies with their mouth on behalf of God to the people and on behalf of the people to God. I mean, it's a huge role. And her name's Anna. And she's the last living prophet. Luke wanted us to know that. And she met up with Mary and Joseph and spoke truth into their life, a profound moment. And then moved on from there, and Peter and the 12 were chosen. And Peter's mother-in-law had this, this fever. How many of you have had a fever this week and been dealing with that? And you wish Jesus would come to your house? Well, Jesus came over to Peter's mother-in-law house and healed her of her fever. Peter's like, it's my mother-in-law. I'm trying to get in good with the in-laws. Could you help me out here, Jesus, sort of a deal. (laughs) And then went from that story to this woman who said, my son is dead. Can you come? And for some reason, after watching the life of Christ, she knew that he could do something about her dead boy. And he goes to her house, and it's the first resurrection. He raises her son from the dead. What I love about that story is he saw the woman, he heard her cry, and it said his heart went out to her. Like this is one of the first rabbis that were, were not unfeeling, just prophets and, and, and just coming and just spewing out a bunch of knowledge about the law, but they wouldn't lift a finger to help anyone. He was moved inside of his spirit and his heart went out to her, and she was a woman. And and the next story goes on and talks about the woman who crashed this party Jesus was having with a Pharisee who was reclining at the table with him and she just got behind his feet and she didn't have a basin or a towel or water so she wet his feet with her tears and she washed his feet with her hair and he looked at her and she said she loves much because she knows she's been forgiven much. And then he looks at the Pharisees like, you sit there and you recline and you don't understand the grace that's been extended to you so you feel like you're just chilling in my presence. You don't even know the presence of who you're in the presence of. I don't even know if that last sentence was grammatically correct. <laughs> but it's quite redundant. Like, wow, that's a cool story. But then it went to the next story and it was... Jairus, who was the leader of the synagogue, it seemed like the centurion had a boy that he came to Jesus and was like, can you heal? All these powerful men and the leader of the synagogue, nobody really cared about Jesus until they needed something powerful and radical to happen in their lives. You'll notice that. It's no different than us today. We don't come to church until things get bad again. 
And when things got bad, it's like, Jesus, my, my daughter, she's dying. Will you come? And he's like, sure. And while he's on his way, the crowds are pressing in. And ironically enough, while the crowds are pressing in, a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years comes, presses through the, the crowds and grabs the, the cloak that he had, the hem of his garment. And not only did, did love go out to him and his heart went out from him, but in that case, his power went out from him to that woman and healed her. Can you imagine 12 years of having your period? 144 months every day of the month having your menstrual cycle? Guys are like, no. <laughs> Women are like, no. Would it be a big day for you? An eventful day, the day that you were healed of the 12-year period? Yes. Significant day in the life of this woman. She could barely leave the house. She couldn't go to Olive Garden. <laughs> she couldn't go on vacation with her family. She literally couldn't go anywhere because of the odor, the smell, the inconvenience of constant flow of blood. And she gets to touch Jesus and he heals her by his power as he's on the way to heal a little girl. And then he raises her out of her sleep. And then there's this woman, the women are starting to get emboldened, that cries out from the crowd, blessed is the one who gave birth to you and nursed you. So a woman is given street cred for Mary, another woman, to Jesus in the presence of the crowd. Women did not cry out with their voice in a crowd of people unless they were emboldened by the presence of the rabbi they were following who gave them permission to have a voice. Shut up! And Jesus is like, you don't tell her to shut up. She has just as much to say as you do. In fact, probably more. Because they've been sitting and listening for too long and they've got wisdom to share. And then the last one, I think it was page 33, 34. It's just this woman who was bent over, crippled for 18 years. You remember that one? And I don't know if she had some degenerative disease. Anybody ever had back problems? Can you imagine for 18 years just being crippled and having a bad back? And in this case, it was Sabbath, so they were trying to trap him. And, and in that time, you couldn't heal anyone on the Sabbath, which was just a stupid added law by the Pharisees. And he came in, and he knew he was picking a fight. This is what I love about Jesus. He knew what they were there for. He knew their thoughts, and he was like, I'm going to pick a fight with them. And he does it. He heals her. And then he looks at the Pharisees and says, how many of you has like a donkey, has a jackass that would need water that wouldn't lead him out to give that donkey water? How much more this daughter of Abraham, this is the second time he used the word daughter. The first time was when he healed the woman uh, of her bleeding of blood. And this is the second time he called her daughter, a term of endearment. And after that, they were somewhat just stunned and I love the verse my favorite verse as we ended the reading it said his opponents were humiliated but the people were delighted that's what church should be man I'm just hearing this refreshing news about the hope and possibility that God has actually impregnated inside of me his very image and he has a purpose and a plan for my life and it's giving me hope and it's giving me permission to live out all of the things he's placed inside of me. I'm delighted and his opponents are like, ah, I hate this guy. He's ruining the curve. He's making the rest of us look like a bunch of dopes. Just, I was thinking, why did, why did Luke do this? Well, Luke was not one of the 12 apostles. He was a doctor. He was, he was a guy who didn't set down his scalpel and follow the Lord like they set down their nets and follow the Lord. He was educated. We know from Acts chapter 4, 13, that the, the ones Jesus called to be apostles were unschooled, ordinary men and took note that they'd been with Jesus, but he was on the outside, he was on the periphery, so he was noticing, I may not be one of the apostles, but I'm one of the 72 on the next like ring of followers, and I've noticed that there's a lot of movers and shakers out here, and they're not all women, 
And they're not all men, they're just a just a motley crew of a bunch of people that have been assembled that follow God nonetheless. And so he chose to write stories from his perspective based on what he was an eyewitness of, which would have been a completely different set of lenses from the outside in rather than the inside out as an apostle. See, the apostles probably didn't really notice much about women because they were just in the company of men all the time. And when you're in an echo chamber of men, you tend to just think man thoughts in the man cave all day long. But when you get around women, some really crazy things happen. They have different ideas and feelings and perspectives and interpretations. And I think Luke is like, you're not going to believe on this next ring, there is some amazing, powerful, courageous women that are a part of following Christ as disciples. Maybe not apostles, but disciples. I then read a passage that specified three of them, and I want to just cover that today. And it's actually found on page 20 if you have this book. You can bring this book every um, week, and I don't know if you're marking it up, but I would mark it up and just write in it. Nobody's going to like strike you dead if you do that. It's just it's a way to learn But this passage is in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says this. This is right after um, uh, the woman washed um, Jesus' feet with her tears, uh, with her hair. It said, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, those are the apostles, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them, that would be the disciples and Jesus, out of their own means. That's significant. That means they were the ones that were resourcing, were funding and fueling the ministry of Jesus for three years in his public ministry while the disciples left their jobs and their houses and their livelihoods and and all of their means of income. These women showed up and backfilled and said, we'll take care of you. We've got the resources to be able to finance and fuel and fund the mission that you guys are on. And we're going to join you, if you don't mind, walking right along behind you. And we're going to be the ones who uh, are your backers on this mission trip that you're on for three years. That's amazing. I, I was thinking about these women and these three women would have been probably what the three guys that we hear about a lot out of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, what they were to the 12 male apostles. These three women, Mary and Joanna and Susanna were to the many female followers of Jesus. Very influential women. Influential but had been filled with demons and evil spirits and been freed of infirmities and afflictions and, and iniquities. And to me, I was like, wow. I guess it wasn't just the ones that were down and out and the bottom feeders and the lowlifes that Jesus came for. He came for the people in the upper echelon and he was freeing them from their afflictions and their vexations as well. Men and women. Just women being at the feet of a rabbi never happened. Little girls often weren't even educated past a certain age. They were meant to have household duties, wash dishes, take care of the kids, take care of their husband, take care of the house, more domestic in nature. I'm not against that. I, I think that's a powerful role that a woman needs to play, but they didn't all play that role in the scriptures, which was the new normal of the day. Some of them said, I'm actually, as a single person, going to leave and go on this mission with Jesus. Joanna was married to Cusa, and she was following Jesus around, must have got permission from her husband to actually go on this subversive mission. I, I would say it was probably somewhat private and under the radar even. 
Women in that day, because of the Roman culture that they were influenced by, were starting to lose their Jewish tradition that came from the Torah and were starting to assume the cultural norms of the Roman Empire. And the Romans viewed women as property at best. They were commodities. They were objectified and commodified. They were utilitarian at best, just useful, used and abused in that culture. And the Jews began to take on some of that mindset and their perspective on women. It's interesting, even within Jewish culture, doing some research, one of the common prayers of, of a Jewish man at this time, influenced by Roman civilization and their cultural perspective on women, one of their prayers was, God, I want to thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. This was a Jewish prayer of men in that day. How hijacked can you get? This is them going to church and praying that prayer about 75 degrees from the truth. But, but you even look at philosophers that we look up to in history. Plato, pretty smart dude, right? Philosopher, we still glean from his writings. You see him quoted in all kinds of books and articles and periodicals. Plato had this phrase that went like this. He said, if a bad man's fate is to be reincarnated into a woman. If you are a bad man... Your punishment is that in reincarnation, which he believed in, you would actually take steps backward and become, of all things, a woman. Oh, what a wise guy. Aristotle, you ever heard of Aristotle? Aristotle had a, a phrase, it's, it almost is so repugnant, it makes you want to puke. But he said, females are imperfect males accidentally reproduced by inadequate fathers. Let me just say that again. Females are imperfect males accidentally reproduced by inadequate fathers. Aristotle. These were the greatest men with the greatest ideas in their day and this is the best they could come up with as it related to women. And then Jesus comes along. And a powerful man. In fact, you can read it. They said, this man is different. This man speaks as one having authority. This isn't like just anybody else. This guy is fighting for us. And that's why they were delighted. And the power was humiliated. Because he spoke truth to power. And he spoke grace to those who are powerless. He was different. You read about these women that specifically were mentioned. We'll start out with Mary called Magdalene. Mary, what, what John was in the disciples, the disciple Jesus loved, Mary would have been in the female disciples, the, the best friend of Jesus when it comes to females that he had. Probably the best way to describe who Mary Magdalene is is to debunk a lot of who she wasn't. I had to do this this week because there are no less than six different Marys that are intermingled, or I like to say intermarried, <laughs> in the text that we've all crammed together. There's Mary and Martha, there's Mary of Bethany, there's Mary, the mother of, you know, different sons of James and Joseph. It's all these Marys are all over the place, a very common name. And Mary Magdalene was not the Mary that you know, broke the alabaster jar and poured out a year's worth of wages on his feet. That was not this Mary. It, she wasn't the woman caught in adultery, drug out that was going to be stoned that he advocated for and defended and said, I neither condemn you, now go and sin no more. That wasn't Mary. Mary wasn't the one that washed Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. Mary was not destitute, nor was she a prostitute. She was influential, she was intellectual, she was inspirational, and she was instrumental. 
But unfortunately, this Mary was also mental and going postal. She was losing her mind. One of the only ways they knew to describe someone that had mental illness in that day, this may help you understand the evil spirit thing, was to say they have an evil spirit. When someone had a mental illness, they would say they have an evil spirit. And she had seven evil spirits that that Jesus cast out of her, which in that day would have meant she probably had a multi-personality disorder or a split personality. And this would have been, if you were her mom and dad, devastating to see your intelligent, influential daughter, just prominent daughter who led so well and had, was so well spoken of and such a great leader just being taken out by mental illness. See, Mary of Magdalene, she was of Magdala, the city of Magdala, which was on the coast of Galilee, a very prosperous town, a bustling town of manufacturing. It was known to be, had factories of textiles and factories that created dyes. I mean, this was a place of commerce. And she was either from a family that was well-to-do, that had a business, or she was entrepreneurial and started her own business because she was one of the women that supported Jesus out of her means. She meant something in that culture. Her story strikes me because she was so prominent in the text. She's actually mentioned more than Mary, the mother of Jesus, She was mentioned eight to ten times. Mary Magdalene was mentioned 14 times throughout the Gospels. Of all the women in the Gospels, definitely the one that was the closest to Jesus and his best friend. That's why the scandal of the Da Vinci Code has sort of surfaced and become believable when you're talking about, you know, sort of the the idea of conspiracy theories. Because she was so close to him and it wasn't just scandalous that he was called a friend of sinners it would probably be more scandalous to be framed a friend of women and to have so many women married and unmarried following you around having access to you talking to you the woman at the well had this I mean this is just the way Jesus lived his life and that she struggled with Let's just say she ran a business and she managed a massive corporation and she was an overseer of so many things and had to execute things and vision cast and team build and know how to scale that business. And she knew about finances and she knew about product and she knew and specialized in so many entrepreneurial artistic things. And can you imagine the stress of that? Does anybody understand where I'm going with this? And that stress turns to anxiety, which turns to panic attacks, where you wake up at night and you think you're having a heart attack, which turns into hearing voices at night because you have like what's called insomnia, and then you can't get your sleep, and then you start hearing voices, and then you become schizophrenic, and then you develop a split personality, and then you forget who you are, and it's, you watch a person become so influential, and so intellectual, and so inspirational, and become mental and postal, it would break your heart, and She comes to a place of desperation where she reaches out. We don't know where it happened or when it happened, but Jesus encountered her and set her free and said, now I want to leverage that and harness everything you are for the kingdom of God. Welcome aboard the Jesus train, the soul train. And she followed him to the end. To the end. And to the nth degree. I mean, she was the eyewitness of Jesus. She followed him to the cross and she followed Joseph of Arimathea to his grave that he donated to Jesus. And she actually, unlike most of the disciples, believed that when Jesus said he was going to die, be buried for three days and rise again, she actually believed it because she was there through the whole thing. So that's where I think men sometimes are like, I just don't get it. I mean, yeah, you're going to tear down the temple and then you're going to raise it up again in three days. What kind of parabolic, you know, stuff are you talking about? Explain that to me. And I think the girls are like, I get it. 
don't you hate how women get it? <laughs> Guys are like, I'm just more linear and more cerebral, and if you can't get out the logical line of, you know, thinking, I just don't understand. Maybe that's why there was only one dude at the cross and a bunch of women. Because they're the ones that actually got this wasn't the end, it was just the beginning. Because we were hearing what he was saying. This is what's scandalous and subversive. She was the eyewitness, the first eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ in a time when women weren't even allowed in the court of law to be witnesses in any court case. And God's like, I'm going to turn everything on its head. I'm going to give this woman the opportunity to be the eyewitness to quite possibly the greatest event that's ever occurred. And this is where she got the name by early church fathers. She was an apostle to the apostles because she was sent by Jesus after she saw and heard him directly to the apostles to explain to them what had happened, to try to coax them out of their boats and out of going back to their occupations and back into the revolution that they had given up on. It was believed that she followed John all the way to Ephesus and that she then went furthest north of all of the disciples to the southern part of France, becoming an evangelist for the gospel. Unbelievable, the courage of this woman. And then you have Joanna, and Joanna's married to Cusa, who's like the right-hand man, the prime minister in the household of Herod, who was the leader of all the Jews at that time. His dad was Herod the Great, who was the one who butchered all the boys in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, and they had to flee as refugees to Egypt for two years. This was this guy's son that was in power now, Herod Antipas. And so this Joanna was married to the guy who was like the prime minister of Antipas, Herod Antipas. And I don't know if she had a disease or some infirmity or... Uh, some sort of evil spirit on her, but she probably tried all the wise men and all the physicians that she knew, the best of the best, because she had the best of the best afforded to her, and it didn't work, and so her last-ditch effort, I'm sure, was like, I've heard this Jesus can do something, and Kusa even said, go see him, I love you, and he healed her and set her free, and she never went back. And yet she played a, a particular role, if you do research into her life, that she stayed in the West Wing, per se, and she was not just the provider of Jesus, though she had tons of means in order to provide financially, she was the protector of Jesus so that he could make it three years so the paparazzi didn't take him out. Did you notice in the text as you read it this week that he would heal people and then say, don't tell anyone? It's like, what is that all about? Don't you want to spread the gospel? No, because he was saying, I don't want this to get out. I have to fly under the radar. I have to be alive for three years until everything comes to pass, until the fullness of time comes for me to be crucified. So there was something methodical and very strategic about the, the way that Jesus had to maneuver and to manipulate his way through time in order to get to the cross, but to do it in three years. And one of the women that was very powerful because she was well-connected to Galilee and to Judea at the time is she had networked to all these towns and had people in those towns, had hostels in these towns and safe houses in these towns when she knew that there was some scheme to ambush Jesus coming into the town, she would hear about it in the West Wing and she would come and tell them, hide them in that safe place, that safe house, until things died down and then the disciples and Jesus would leave. She was one of the ones that allowed him to take the gospel to all people and get as far as he went with the gospel, as long as it took. Isn't that crazy? But Jesus had to overcome some trust issues, I would say. Hey, your dad, or her, you're working for the guy whose dad killed all the boys and was after me. He changed my early life. My mom and dad are still traumatized by that whole event. And now you're working for the dude that killed my cousin, John the Baptist, and took off his head. Now think about that. This woman who's a follower of Jesus, providing for him, an informant for him, a mole on the inside, a backer if there ever was one, a leaker, 
This woman also was the one that when John the Baptist's head came off, it's been told that she took that head and she took it out to Herod's you know, burial ground and she gave it the honorable ceremonial burial, burial of a Jewish burial when no one else would. And Jesus said, you're in such a place as you are for such a time as this so that the gospel can spread. And this woman of power was used by God. And then there's Susanna in this text and many others. I studied for hours on who Susanna was. I found zero. This is the only time she's mentioned in the Bible and there's nothing known about her. And for hours I studied to find nothing. Do you know how frustrating that is? And then it hit me. This is very important because a lot of you here feel like you're nothing. You feel like you have no story. You have no testimony. You have testimony envy if you have anything at all. You're like, man, I wish I did drugs <laughs> so I could be on a video. I'm going to go do drugs for a month to sort of sow my wild oats so that I can have a testimony. I grew up in a good home. I was raised. I went to a one. I memorized verses. I didn't have sex before I was married. And I actually have a good set of morals. Crap. You know? There's just no description of me that's noteworthy at all. I'm not special at all. Oh, yes, you are. That's a good thing. There's people here that have testimonies that wish they had your story. But that might be you. And guess what her name means? True beauty. Hidden beauty. Sleeping beauty. You know how much sleeping beauty is in this place right now? Hidden beauty, true beauty. Most of the true beauty, and Disney has figured this out and they exploit us with every movie. Most true beauty is hidden. It's out somewhere in the woods with a bunch of dwarves. <laughs> right? I know that's Snow White, but it's the same. I don't care who you are. The story is the same. The true beauty is always hidden, and sometimes it's never discovered because life's not Disney. But it doesn't mean it wasn't there and it didn't matter. And, and Susanna's clumped together. Susanna and many others, and the word many is a feminine pronoun that means many other females. So it's not just these three, it's many females. And it was interesting, I did... A little bit of study and another verse came up and it was right after Christ died and the centurion said, surely this is the son of God. And in Mark 15, it said this, some women were watching from a distance. This is at the cross and among them, there she is, Mary Magdalene and then Mary, the mother of James, another Mary, the younger of Joseph and Salome. And that was another Mary Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Different way of saying the same thing. For three years, they'd been faithful to the end. And many other women who had come up with him to Jer from Jerusalem were also there from Galilee to Jerusalem. For all these years, these women who'd cared for him and supplied their needs out of their own means, means followed them to the end. I want two pictures in your mind to be shattered today. Number one is that the gospels in the Bible is Jesus and 12 guys going around all over the place from town to town. I want your picture now to be Jesus and 12 apostles and about 72 to 120 men and women and children following him around that had significant roles because Luke was one of them and Mary and many of these other women were among those movers and shakers in the kingdom. Many other women, anonymous but faithful. And you might feel like, man, I'm anonymous, nobody knows me. But are you faithful in anonymity? I was thinking, man, I wonder if in the church there's a disproportionate amount of females who have followed Christ in comparison to males. I just went to that. And I looked at the early church and early church fathers, one early church father said it this way, we have too many Christian maidens and not enough Christian men for them to marry. This was back in 400 BC, or AD. Already more females than males were drawn to the Lord Jesus. Most of them were not named, but they were the ones not given the credit, but doing the work. Has anything changed? <laughs> 
It's interesting. I was like, well, what about up to this day? There's been research done. Pew Research and Barna Research has done research that 61% compared to 39% in the church are females that make up the average congregation. That within a congregation, and and I want to just applaud the courage and boldness of these women, 25% of the married women that come to church each weekend come without their husband. 25%. I just want to let you know you are so bold and so courageous because what's in your heart is that, that the want to pursue Christ and to have your kids to have a Christian heritage and be taught. I mean, how many of us would disagree that many of us wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the spiritual strength and leadership of our mom? That our dad wouldn't have got out of his addiction if it wasn't for the faithfulness of our mom. And then you you, you go on, and I love one of the, the guys who was doing a lot of the research. He said, most of our Christian universities have turned into convents. What he said by meant by this is out of Christian universities, it's two to one ratio of females to males that go to most Christian universities. In some, it's three to one. Which is great if you're a guy looking to get married <laughs> because you have a very small pond that's overstocked with lots of fish. And I was like, I wonder, my daughter is a freshman at Indiana Wesleyan University. I got on the website, I'm like, I'm curious. There are... 3,300 men in the undergraduate course, and there are 6,800 females. I'm like, she's not going to get married. (laughs) And it just, it struck me that, man, women have carried the baton and the torch an awful lot. And they haven't gotten a lot of credit, but they've done a lot of work. And I'm here on behalf of God to say thank you. I notice them and I notice you today. And for a lot of years, a lot of us guys are like, man, eh, I don't know, today was all about women. (laughs) Do you know how many years women have had to come to church to listen to a man talk about stories of men using masculine illustrations and they have deduced and extrapolated principles to live by out of that. Do you think we as men can just have a week where we have a fighting chance of doing the same thing? Is that all I'm getting out of this congregation today? Holy smokes. This is for all of us. This is a wake-up call. This is not, oh, he's speaking on this because of the hashtag Me Too movement. (laughs) So, (laughs) maybe I am, maybe I'm not. But it happens to be in the first 34 pages of Luke, so I'm going to talk about it. Women matter to God. Big time. Big time. Big time. And I want you to know, here's something for everybody in this place. You may not have anybody that believes in you, and you may not believe in you, but Jesus believes in you. That's one thing. You may not have anybody that values you, and you may not value you, but Jesus values you. He sees you, he knows you, he values you. You may not have anyone who pursues you and befriends you, but Jesus will befriend you. I don't care who you are. Last, least, lost, lowest, that's who he came for. I hear Jesus singing, you got a friend in me. You got a friend in me. That's what Jesus came to say. And everyone knew it. And that's why they were delighted. Anybody here feel crazy? Anybody here feel insane in the membrane? Anybody feel like you're going out of your mind? Anybody feel like you're losing your marbles? Anybody feel like you're a split personality? Sometimes you want to do this, sometimes you want to do... Anybody stressed out? Anybody have insomnia? Anybody have mental illness in this place? Jesus has come for you. And you can be a leader with a lot of money and a lot of stuff and be just as broken as the person in the gutter. 
That's what I love about this story is it elevates, they just didn't go after the destitute and the prostitutes. He went after the prosperous and the industrious. And he freed all of them. Anybody here feel like you're prominent? And so you just kind of, Jesus doesn't want me. And Jesus came after prominent people. I want to say this, that Jesus is not intimidated by prominent, intellectually astute, powerful personalities in women. He's not. Or men. He needs you. Anybody here feel like you don't have a good enough story? Jesus knows you and he loves you. And he came for all of us to give us a hope and new possibility and new options and new normal for the future. That's why I'm excited about this series, just to see God again for the first time. So God, as we lift you up today, we thank you for revealing yourself to us by your written word. And I want to thank you for what you showed me this week that just caught me off guard. And I pray that you would just keep catching us off guard and revealing us to us things that are profound and powerful for what we need for the journey ahead. I pray that you spoke to men and women in this place and opened their eyes and changed their picture of what they even think about when they picture the Bible when they read it. I thank you that you made men and women in your image and in your likeness. And we wanna see you in your fullness, God, in this church and in this community. So lift us up. Free us from the things that bind us and hold us captive and empower us and release us to be all that you've made us to be, men, women, and children. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, have a great day. Thanks for coming to Impact today.